So the social, to open it up at all, and I don't just mean like asking your analyst or your therapist, did you vote for X or Y, but the actual social field in the U.S. is seen as both now a conversation that's happening and worth happening, but maybe even six years ago, five years ago, would have been seen as kind of wild and left. Whereas for almost any person, it's the absolute way they relate to their life. That's Hannah Zeven. She recently started a magazine trying to think through those questions, trying to uncover the psychosocial dimensions of our lives. This week on Interstates, I talk with Hannah about the magazine, about growing up in a family of psychoanalysts, and more. That's coming up right after this. There was a time when psychoanalysis was the thing. Americans coming back from World War II, who'd gone through all kinds of violence and trauma, They could come home and talk with an analyst, and there was evidence that those sessions really helped with their struggles. We would probably now call those struggles PTSD. Anyway, that high point of psychoanalysis lasted until about the 1960s. Now, most therapy is not specifically psychoanalytic, but psychoanalysis has never just been about the individual patient. Even Freud used his theories to try to understand society. His practices may have fallen out of fashion, but his thinking stayed alive in the academy, And now there's a new magazine, it's called Parapraxis, that wants to remind us how psychoanalysis can help us think about society now. So I decided to bring in the magazine's founding editor, Hannah Zeven, to make the case for psychoanalysis and social analysis. Hannah taught at Indiana University this past year, and she came into the studio in February, a couple months after the magazine's release. We talked about how growing up in a family of psychoanalysts shaped her relationship to her own feelings, gender panics, whiteness in psychoanalysis, and the space she's created for thinking together. This is not Hannah's only project. Her first book is called The Distance Cure. It's about the interwoven histories of communication technology and therapy. She's got another book in the works called Mother's Little Helpers, Technology in the American Family. She's written for The New Yorker, The Guardian, Harper's, and more. I asked Hannah to introduce herself. I'm the founding editor of Parapraxis Magazine, along with six other incredible editors. And it's really nice to be with you today. It's so great to have you. I thought you were going to say six other projects, which at least six other projects. (laughs) We Um, don't have to talk about those. (laughs) So, yes, I want to talk about the magazine, how Freud can help us move toward the radical horizon of political emancipation, as you put it. But as I think any good analyst would want to do, maybe we should start with some origins. You grew up in a household of psychoanalysts. How did that affect how you understood your own feelings? What a question. (laughs) To Um, just start. Actually, it's an impossible question, but it's one that to some extent drives my intellectual and, I guess, emotional life, as you asked about my feelings. Um, I am the child of two analysts, my mom and my stepfather, and grew up in New York City in the 90s uh, with them and also all of their friends who are also analysts, more or less, or they're translators of French analysts into English, one I was just speaking to on the phone last night. And they did that. They had this beautiful way of raising their children. I have two younger brothers that I deeply admire and resonate with, which is that, sure, there's a biological family. And within our family, in fact, not all of us are biologically related, but that the family also had this kind of capacity to it. Uh, It didn't have to be exactly nuclear. And that was its aspiration, to be bigger and extend beyond the confines of a home and uh, a group, but to be a bigger one. So lots of analysts were very uh, influential and around. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you may or may not have that much awareness as to what your parents are doing somewhere else. But at least for me, and I've spoken with my younger brothers about this, the somewhere else that parents went to work was fascinating and a secret. Because when you'd ask them, what did you do today? All they could say was, I saw some patients, right? There was this, you know, Lacan says, sort of famously, desire is predicated on a lack. There was this extreme lack, this underfeatured knowledge of what they were doing. And it had this kind of quasi mystical status in the family. Which was already clear even when you were really young. Yeah. I mean, we went and we 
I mean, I, you'd have to ask Ivan and Isaiah about this, but I certainly uh, would go and sleep on their couches, you know, after school or after preschool, uh, play with their diagnostic cards, um, you know, talk to them about what they were reading with Dora, age 10, things like this, right? It really was like being raised within any kind of weird minor form, <laughs> almost a cult, we could say. And so we had a, a great deal of awareness of what we were a cult and cultish around which was, you know, more or less Freud. I've dodged your question, which is how it impacted my feelings, my understanding of my feelings, which I can just say very briefly was all about knowing what they were. So mostly when we, I think, you people not raised by analysts, when you have a feeling, you might feel it. Right. I don't know that I feel things before I know what they are, not consciously. And it's something I'm trying to work on. What is a feeling before you know what it is? I don't know. But there was this understanding, and I write about this in the first issue of Parapraxis. My brother calls it roots, not fruits, that in order to have an emotion or a symptom, we had to be able to locate it, why we were having it, uh, to have an explanation and a narrative around it. We couldn't just feel. Uh, this isn't so malicious as it sounds. You know, parents today, especially, often try and help their children locate what they're feeling. We just had that on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> to the degree that it almost didn't even count as a feeling until it was articulated? I think there are shades of that problem, which is that not that it didn't count, but that no one can help you when you are feeling without language. Mm -hmm. And I think that that to some extent, may be true, how is someone to begin to assist you in unpacking and narrativizing a feeling before you have narrativized it? So what my parents didn't do was interpret us without us interpreting ourselves. That would have been worse, certainly. I'm sad. Well, it must be because of your mother. No, there was none of this kind of reductive uh, interpreting the child before the child is willing and interested. But it did mean that if you were crying, and not zero years old, but crying and a little bit older, the, the request might be like, do you think you know what's happening? I think that makes sense. It does make me curious about, there's this idea that, you know, we have different people have different kind of modalities. And is it necessary to narrativize? Maybe you use something other than language to narrativize it. Like maybe there's imagery or something. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my parents were lucky uh, in that this parenting style happened to agree with, I can't, you know, I have spoken with both of my brothers. I can really only speak for myself. Happened to more or less work with both my life and what was happening in it. Starting at, I can really start to remember this coming up at age four, maybe a little bit before when my parents divorced uh, when I was three. But, you know, certainly how I've lived my life has been centered around this question. You have to ask the subsequent question, which is, is it because... That's how I was raised. Um, or was it more organic than that? Freud would say it's multiply determined. So at least I, whatever a person is, have something to do with it. But I think if, if I had been a different child and my brothers and I have similarities, we have differences, it may have worked better. It may have worked much worse. Yeah. And I can't say that my parents wouldn't have adapted, right? Or that they didn't. I mean, they say that each child has different parents, even if they have the same parents. Oh, uh, yeah. Me and my brothers actually do have different parents, which which makes it even <laughs> like more actually a fine different point. people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. So there was this intrigue around it as you were growing up. And as you got older, you avoided Freud and psychoanalysis as an object of curiosity, as something you might pursue. Yeah, it was certainly. So whatever it was in, it was, you know, Auden calls it an entire climate of opinion, Freud, right. Freudian psychoanalysis, that even if we try and get rid of it, we really can't. And all you have to do is go to a bar and overhear 40 minutes of conversation, basically anywhere I've ever been in the United States. And you can start to hear the Freudian paradigms translated through a game of telephone, mind you, over sure. a century start to appear. Oh, she's dating someone just like her mother on and on and on like this. But beyond that kind of colloquial element and that kind of quotidian exposure, both within the home that I've just described and beyond it, yeah, I wasn't that interested. I was a poet, and I was very, very interested in American poetics. So Freud, okay, but it wasn't Alice Notley or John Ashbery or Diane de Prima or Bernadette Mayer. So I didn't really 
care all that much. It wasn't Amiri Baraka, right? And that all changed like things do. I had a kind of moment with my object refound. I refound Freud at age 19. I was in a class. The course was on the U.S. family portrait from the start of photography in the 19th century to the present that was, oh, this was 2009, with Dr. Laura Wexler, who's phenomenal. And she assigned us in relation to, I can't remember, death portraiture, maybe, Mourning in Melancholia by Freud. And it's a really difficult essay. It's a deceptively difficult essay, as much of Freud is. And um, I had never, and probably still to this day, have never wanted so badly to understand every element of the text. And I was 19, and it changed my life. I really kind of abandoned poetry after that and turned very hard towards critical theory. And what was it in there that hooked you? Yeah, it's one of, you know, it's the thing that I think has hooked me about psychoanalysis. It's the thing my parents were trying to give me as a child, which is psychoanalysis is often about trying to name something, a phenomenon that might have some universalizing tendencies. It sure does. But that people, let's just say not all people, but some people, some of the time in some places and sometimes are experiencing and trying to really think about the psychic mechanisms at play so that we can deal with them. Not undo them, not necessarily mitigate them, but work within them. So Mourning in Melancholia is such a paper. It's Freud trying to understand the difference between mourning. We can use this word with asterisks because it's a little problematic productive mourning. Mourning that is very sad, a person is you know really depressed, and melancholia, which becomes set up as the more pathological outcome. Uh, Freud has this line that there is very little, maybe nothing, that distinguishes mourning and melancholia. So it's a good setup for like, let me understand this, right? You're like, really? Why are you writing this article, Freud? But that the melancholic does not know this is Freud, what is lost in him. And so melancholia mm. for Freud, and lots of people have come afterwards to work in the aftermath of this essay, critiquing it, extending it, thinking about melancholy and race, melancholy in the post-colonial, melancholy and gender. But Freud's idea is that the melancholic takes all of their feeling towards the lost object and, and turns it in on the self. Um, and so it becomes this kind of pathological difference, not knowing what he's lost, but that he's lost it in him. And I don't know why this of all the essays Right. I could speculate, but that's all it would be. But I, you know, I remember 19 and kind of lazy at the time <laughs> reading, like reading this essay again and again and again. Right. And still can remember the excitement of I must understand this. Yeah. Was your newfound need to understand this and psychoanalysis maybe more generally, how much of it was about a desire to understand something about the self and the individual experience versus the ways that it offered you an opportunity to think more broadly about society and politics. Yeah. So for me, this is something I'm also really attracted to about psychoanalysis generally. And I don't know if I consciously got that at 19, but that you can think psychoanalytically about the world, about society, about groups, extending a kind of furtive work that Freud had started, especially towards the end of his life. You can think very much psychoanalytically about oneself or another, an individual, also about art, right? So it's a way, it's a hermeneutic, and of course it's also a therapeutic practice. And mostly, I think statistically in terms of numbers, it's now a way of looking at the world. There are actually very few people, about 10,000, in a true in scare quotes, in a sort of definitionally by the American Psychoanalytic Association, true analysis, a definition that I would push back on, but there it is. Only 10,000. And, you know, there are many more people interested in thinking with psychoanalysis, at least a little bit. But it is a, a pretty minor form of care. For me, the work of Mourning and Melancholia immediately became about thinking about the Vietnam War in the United States and a series of artworks that veterans were making upon returning to the United States, given the kind of absolute breakup of mental health care in that period, and were making these melancholic artworks. And I was trying to theorize what you were one might be doing when they made these kind of highly repetitive, kind of self-violent artworks. So both the social yeah. and the history of mental health care, and also aesthetics, which I mostly turned away from after that point. 
when I became a historian. This is Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and I'm talking with Hannah Zeven about Parapraxis. That's the magazine she founded to bring psychoanalysis into conversation with the social elements of our lives. Things like racism, gender, and sexuality, and more. Let's take a quick break. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Let's get back to my conversation with Hannah Zeven. I asked her why she decided it was time to start a general interest magazine devoted to psychoanalysis. The deputy editor of Parapraxis is someone called Alex Colston. And Alex put this very cute screenshots on the day Parapraxis was announced, released, when the issue dropped in December, which is, uh, you know, then and now how it started, how it's going, following that kind of meme. And it's just me DMing him in November 2021, being like, hey, I have a work question for you. Do you have time for a call? And then the the issue that you have (laughs) over by you. Um, You know, my stepfather, who is my very beloved person, was doxxed in the summer of 2021. And he was doxxed because he wrote a paper trying to think about the psychic mechanisms of whiteness. And he was doxxed. He received dozens and dozens of violent death threats. I don't know that you can have an unviolent death threat. He certainly didn't get those. He got these very graphic, upsetting death threats. There was a lot of confusion um, around what he might want and be representing a great deal of fantasy. Was he a a Nazi who was a Jew? (laughs) Was he a Marxist who sided with Hitler? Right. The kind of confusion in tongues around what Dr. Donald Moss was up to was a whole question. And it was very frightening, obviously, on a personal level, but it was also frightening on a kind of political level and a social level, because it wasn't just like the far right and Tucker Carlson, who did indeed pick up the story, but also the way psychoanalysts, near colleagues, reacted to it. And it it felt clear to me that there are great peer-reviewed psychoanalytic journals that are more or completely on the left, that there are institutes all over the, the United States, all over the world, but not many that are really interested in thinking about the psycho and the social together. But there wasn't a kind of place to do the work of thinking through the social, the political, the clinic, the cultural, from a psychoanalytic point of view on the left. And so what do millennials do but make little magazines? You know, it's, it's an available form. We could have made a podcast, right? We could have done it. I write and I'm in, invested in, right? So that was what I proposed to Alex on that day in November was to start a magazine that would do just that, would be the first mainstream popular magazine of psychoanalysis on the left in the U.S. And that's what we've more or less done. And um, it also looks really good. When each editor got it, there are pictures successfully of each successively, successfully too, <laughs> of each editor crying, like with joy as they opened it. It was really a pleasure to receive the first issue, which is, yes, on the family and right. the problem of the family. Right. So let's talk about that. I guess there's just a first sort of basic question. What made you decide to start with that? I think the two things that you've gestured at The great news is like the tyranny of being the only editor ended immediately at Parapraxis, right? The whole thing was this first phone call with Alex Colston. But I had to have a kind of pitch. You know, you're about to get a bunch of people on board to do a ton of work for free, myself included, right? It's a volunteer group. Well, you had to have an idea like what we would be addressing. And I thought that the family problem made a lot of different kinds of sense. It's a problem on the left. It's a problem in psychoanalysis. Uh, You can't live with a family. You can't live without it. The entire entirety of Freudian psychoanalysis starts from the idea of the nuclear family, which has subsequently been shown to be a fiction. Like, what are we doing? There's a lot of opportunity to get into the remit of the magazine, which is not just psychoanalysis on the left, sure, but also to really think thoughtfully and redress the errors of psychoanalysis, which are legion, which are multiple. They might not be the ones we think, right? There's a kind of fantasy that psychoanalysis is charlatanism or that it's navel gazing, right? I would disagree with that. But there are real problems that are endemic to the field and endemic to the theory. And so we took the name of parapraxis, which means a productive slip, 
I just have made like six of them on this on this show already as the sign that like one thing that the magazine is trying to do is really work through those errors by resurfacing them rather than repressing them, which Freud tells us is a is a typically a mistake. So the family felt like the thorniest thicket is what Alex called it, uh, the place to start and a place where we could try and see what it would be like to think about both the family and, of course, quote unquote, my family and do that interchange of the psychosocial for both the writers in the magazine, but also we hoped our readers. Let's talk about some of these errors. Sure. I think it's a challenge maybe for people to think about um, Freud as being someone who can help us think about political emancipation on the left, think through racism, patriarchy, capitalism, all these things, because of the, some of those very things that you already mentioned, that you know we sort of see psychoanalysis as coming out of this bourgeois family structure and world. So talk about some of the errors. And I'm also curious about how Freud can help us think sure. through those. So, you know, I think the first thing to say is that there's both Freud's errors and then psychoanalysis errors and where and when. So, you know, the magazine is very much in conversation with international psychoanalysis. Some of the contributing editors, certainly some of the advisors are not in the U.S. But within our ken it's a magazine that's predominantly based most of its writers not all again most of its editors are in the US and it's also redressing a very particular set of problems in US psychoanalysis freud went through a very interesting game of telephone when when freudian analysis arrived and rearrived and rearrived in the united states uh, freud came to the US only once with frenzy and young he um gave a very famous sort of series of lectures at Clark University in Massachusetts. He hated America. He thought we had terrible toilets. And he thought that the nation would only be at all workable if it became majority black and had black leadership. That was Freud's take on the United States. But he also loved how much uh, U.S. citizens went wild Right. For Freud, which we did. <laughs> Not that my people were here, but like which which Americans right. did. And so then there were these kind of homegrown U.S. psychologists, psychoanalysts, but also really interestingly, like the clergy loved Freud. Really? And there was a, a great investment in thinking the psycho-religious. So most famously, Norman Vincent Peale of The Power of Positive yeah, Thinking, right. fame, partnered with Smiley Blanton, who has the best name ever. I try and say it in literally any piece of media I do. Smiley Blanton. Blanton, who was a patient of Freud's and had gone to Vienna to be analyzed by him and maybe was one of the last patients Freud saw before he died from jaw cancer in London. Blanton and Peale set up an entire clinic in New York to train Protestant clergy to become Freudians or Freudian-inflected psychopastoral figures. That clinic still exists. That training program still exists to this day. And there's lots more to say about that. So there's this kind of evangelization, this kind of, you know, people went wild for Freud in the 1920s. That was attenuated. It came back big in the 30s. In World War II, psychoanalysis debuts on its biggest ever stage, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe, because psychoanalysis was the theory that helped deal with war trauma, which would later go on to be thought of as PTSD. And so suddenly in the U.S., psychoanalysis had, unlike now, this sort of... Um, it was conceptualized as greatly evidence-based. It was understood to be completely effective. And there was money behind it. And that's when we enter into what's called Freud mania, which lasts through maybe the 1960s and then ends and has been declining ever since. So within that time, psychoanalysis, in order to deal with both the trauma of World War II, so lots and lots of Jewish emigres who come to practice here, uh, to deal with the decline of the field, have the, in the major tendency, not in its minor, more radical tendencies, responded by taking on a cloak of neutrality, doing that universality around the psyche, which is a white psyche. Even pathology is a kind of white, you're calling it bourgeois psyche, absolutely. Uh, so both classed and raced, hugely normative around gender and sexuality, contra Freud himself, hmm. right, who definitely wouldn't have shared in that set of opinions at all nor would have Lacan. 
Um, but lots of Lacanians afterwards, too, have this hmm. kind of conservatizing tendency. And so I think one thing that parapraxis is trying to do is really locate the errors and from whence they come, uh, sociopolitically and theoretically. And when they get introduced, it doesn't mean Freud is free of errors, not at all. But in the U.S., much of what we would think of as the problems of psychoanalysis in the clinic come belatedly. They come mm -hmm. in the 40s and remain and remain to this day. So no, no surprise that in even addressing whiteness at all, my stepfather received this outpouring of shock and dismay and outrage around such an article. And all it was was an article. Or recently, you know, a, a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Lara Shihai, too, is going through this exact same sort of playbook around redressing violence in Palestine. That to even speak about Palestine is, you know, beyond the ken of a kind of conservative American psychoanalysis. Partly because psychoanalysis should only be about the individual and the family. It should only be about the individual and then their medically relevant family. Right. Right. So the social, to open it up at all, and I don't just mean like asking your analyst or your therapist, did you vote for X or Y? But the actual social field in the U.S. is seen as both now a conversation that's happening and worth happening, but maybe even six years ago, five years ago, would have been seen as kind of wild and left. Huh. Yeah. Whereas for almost any person... Right. It's the absolute way they relate to their life. So tell me about what some of the writers sure. talk about in, in the magazine. You know, you're trying to address um, there's like questions about motherhood. There's questions about family policing. There's a long afterlife of slavery, queer mothering. There's a lot, you know, also about fatherhood. So in the magazine for the for the family problem, we have a sort of classic books review at the at the front, two of which are really beautiful uh, and more revisiting uh, older scholars or scholars who have passed. So one is a remembrance of Sarah Sularai by Noor Asif, who is one of the associate editors of the magazine, and another on Juliet Mitchell, who's a more prominent British psychoanalyst. Um, who is the person who tried to reconcile for the first time feminism and psychoanalysis. Uh, does Freud really hate women? Her answer was in a resounding no. Uh, and that, in fact, feminist liberation cannot happen without Freud. And that was her contribution in the 70s. So that there are these two um, sort of more revisited book reviews. And then features on the recent re-panic around trans children by Max Fox. I'm biased, obviously, because it's my magazine in part. But I think Max does this unbelievable job articulating why this panic, why now? Features by, you mentioned, Joy James's Captive Maternal on the afterlives of slavery and family policing. Now, a beautiful interview with Dorothy Roberts, the sort of you know, most prominent scholar, not only of family policing, but also science and technology studies and black feminism. A beautiful interview. Yeah. There's also an advice column, if that's your thing. <laughs> Gotta have the advice column. Okay, let's take a quick break. I'm talking with Hannah Zeven. She's the founder of Parapraxis, a magazine that uses psychoanalysis to think through social issues. When we come back, Hannah talks about the controversy that erupted when her stepfather published an article about psychoanalysis and whiteness. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. To better understand how psychoanalysis can help us think through social issues, I asked Hannah to tell me about the controversy that erupted when her stepfather, who is a practicing psychoanalyst himself, wrote an essay about the problem of whiteness in psychoanalysis. I wrote this essay for N Plus One. That, that essay is called Unfree Associations, and it, it tells the story of what happened with Don, which is just that, and I think it does work as an example towards your question, like, so what? What can psychoanalysis do for us um, at the social level rather than in, as individuals in the clinic, if I understand yes, your question? Yes, exactly. So Don, in May 2021, published an essay called On Having Whiteness. Uh, and it makes the this very kind of complicated, you know, it's a clinical, technical paper. 
It is not meant to be read outside the field. It is not addressed to anyone who is not a psychoanalyst. It's in a paywalled journal called the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, right? This is like nerd level stuff. Uh, it's a beautiful paper. And Don had, in fact, I should back up and say, had given the paper a lot. So it was surprising when, having published the paper, almost immediately, Don received a phone call from someone at this little far-right website called The Federalist, having all kinds of questions about the paper. And Don, and I, one can't blame him, didn't know what was up, right? Just, what's The Federalist? I don't know. They're interested in the paper. I'll answer anyone's questions. That's the kind of default attitude. And um, they ran some little notice of the paper as being completely, you know, pejoratively using this word insane, right? Look at this kind of mad psychoanalyst. From there, the article leapt to Newsweek, to the Daily Mail, to Tucker Carlson, again, exploded all over Twitter. I found out about the controversy because I was being rude and looking at my phone under the table at dinner where I was scrolling through Twitter and saw retweet after retweet after retweet of Don's abstract. And he was, in the words of a friend who didn't know he was my stepfather, uh, the main character of the internet, and for more than a week. Uh, so that was in May and in June of 2021. When that settled down, and as I said earlier, you know, Don received death threats. Uh, there were bomb threats against his institute. The institute had to shudder. Uh, my parents were asked to consult with the FBI. They never did. But, like, you know, it was serious. Um, when that started to die down, when the voicemails started to stop, institutional psychoanalysis sort of picked up their side of things. So was it out of respect for Don while he was an actual target that they waited? It was on a kind of tape delay. Um, I don't know. I can only sort of suggest, or that it takes time to read long analytic articles, and uh, people had to have some weekends in the summer <laughs> to do that. Some people were actually reading the article. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> a few. A kind of very similar kind of outcry over the idea that whiteness might be a problem, might be something to think about, might actually have psychic properties, but sort of exploded all over all the analytic listservs, of which, because of my relationship to psychoanalysis, I have been on for quite some time, yeah. uh, not recently. So I started reading all of these messages uh, that were addressed to the kind of concern of the community surrounding him. And they went on for quite some time. From time to time, they still come up. You know, it, it never quite seems to be over. Just recently, a colleague republished a whole essay about, you know, this article on having whiteness and how... So what is the concern? I think the concern is quite basic, which is that to make whiteness part of the drives, right, to make whiteness at all something that's a psychic process is a bridge too far. Okay. It, it's a way of politicizing. This is, would be the negative argument. It's right. a way of making social that which is not social. And it's like the those on the social side of psychoanalysis versus we would put them against the neutrals. That's how I refer to them in my M plus one essay, who believe that you should just be a blank slate for your patient, that you shouldn't engage with the social field, that that falls beyond the can of what psychoanalysis can do. We're outraged, right? This seemed like the most, quote unquote, woke psychoanalysis run, run amok. And what was really shocking, it shouldn't have been, but what was shocking was how many colleagues, you know, really found that by addressing whiteness of the self, you know, Don as a, as a Jewish white American, and of patients was just, you know, unbelievable and should be stopped at all costs. So psychoanalysis can tell us something about that, right? It can tell us something about the outrage uh, surrounding the naming of whiteness. It can tell us uh, something about the kind of reading practices that emerged that, I mean, I'd have to pull up like like sure. my charts to show you <laughs> these these screenshots. But it can it can help us understand that actually what Don was talking about began to play out. Right. You know, the, the narcissistic <laughs> defense of whiteness was unbelievable. It was almost funny, right? It was almost funny if you weren't terrified that your beloved stepfather was going to be harmed. You know, Don called me in the middle of it and said, I think I'll be okay if I don't get hit in the head with a baseball bat. I mean, it was that level. 
But psychoanalysis can't bring on the emancipatory horizon on its own, right? There's no, no claim that way in this magazine. But that for a very long time, there's been an interest in braiding, say, Freud with Marx, or not just with Marx, right? Freud stands in for a kind of psychical interest with the material interest of someone like Marx, and it doesn't have to be Marxist. And the magazine is interested in being part of that tradition of failure, right? That has been a failed project for 100 years. No one thinks that parapraxis is going to be the place that pushes it into the next phase, right? But instead is a place to begin to think again. Yeah. That's the remit. Is there a particular uh, piece that came out in this issue that you, and maybe it's Max Fox's piece. It is. (laughs) Tell me about that piece and how you feel like bringing that psychoanalytic lens to this question of um, fear around trans kids takes us another step further. Yeah. So this is, when did we commission this? A little under a year ago. There have okay. there was this return and this reuptick of this panic around it's trans the children, of yeah, which we are still living in, right? Yeah, As absolutely. every single state, it feels like is passing completely terrifying, We're terrifying Indiana legislation. Right now. Yeah, right, including this one. Yes, and so this was the start of of a new cycle around Abbott in Texas putting these kinds of hard recommendations in place for trans children to be taken away from their families that offer gender-affirming care. Right. And the question is, like, why now? You know, what, what is happening? And so Max wrote this beautiful essay called The Traffic in Children. And so, like, behind the scenes, right, Max had an account of why from a more, you know, kind of left perspective. And we had commissioned Max, who is not someone who all the time thinks with psychoanalysis at all. But Max began to really try and work through, knowing, you know, this is the remit of psychoanalysis. And it's the thing that we have offered to our authors, which is you don't have to be a practicing analyst or like the most fluent theory head to write for us at all. Max started taking up the work of Jacqueline Rose, who's a psychoanalyst and critic in the UK, and her work on children to try and think about what is so terrifying about a child and their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And you can make the argument, or Max does, that you can't understand the traffic in children, the panic around the trans child as a figure and as a reality, without having that question of what the fear is which is a psychical question. And so it's a, it's a really painful but beautiful example of trying to really bring these two things together. And, and I think, you know, we were all so moved by Max's writing. And then Max came to our release party in New York, and I got to tell Max that, like, dozens and dozens and dozens of people have told me whether they're the parent of trans children or trans themselves or an interested reader or whatever, that this is the piece of all of the think pieces that have, that have helped them the most with this this really horrific social resurgence. But okay, so just to get a little farther along in the essay itself. Should we read some of it into it? Yeah, let's. I mean, I can just start. So this is Max Fox with the traffic in children from Parapraxis issue one. How do you diagnose a panic? Perhaps you know it when you see it. Canonical approaches describe panics as scapegoats for a more fundamental conflict that cannot be addressed on its own terms. Exciting but never touching the displaced topic, a panic gathers momentum, spiraling outward, lurching towards its furative objects and away from the liberal commitment to reason, even threatening to overturn reason's vaunted place in public discourse. You cannot reason with panic-stricken people, we tell ourselves, but perhaps the serene are no more amenable to it. In the irrational mode of panic, something finds expression that can otherwise not be spoken. The current panic over trans people presents itself as a concern over the proper relation between adults and children. So that's Max's thesis, right, in thinking about the kind of interrelationship between owning and controlling and knowing childhood sexuality and the way that the Abbott onwards control over gender-affirming care for trans children is interrelated. And it's beautifully done, but all the way back down to this work of Jackie Rose's on the kind of fantasies and pressures and ideations surrounding, quote-unquote, the child. And so there's a lot of work trying to think through child liberation, child sexuality, 
and the family, and the family under attack, which many, many different kinds of families are. So family policing as being really understood as interrelated to the struggles to protect trans trans children. Dorothy Roberts talks about this. There are all these kinds of pickups across the issue, none of which were planned. And I think really also reflect the moment we're in, which is part of why we wanted to start with the family problem, right? The problem the family poses when the family is a site of violence. That's the kind of history of psychoanalysis starts with Freud being like, why is everyone coming into the clinic talking about abuse? One of the first questions of Freud's. And then also, what, what do we do to protect the family from the violence being directed at it? which is you know, a classic question since Malcolm X's autobiography in 1965 in Black Study through Dorothy Roberts' work now, but also has all of these new implications in Florida, in Indiana, in Oklahoma, in Texas, and so on. And I think this question of even what do we mean by the family and the challenges of articulating that, because on the one hand, there's the concern about reinforcing this idea of the nuclear family that's exclusive of other kinds of family relationships that are equally necessary to, you know, good relationships and raising children and so on. But also the ways that if we just threw out this idea of like a natal family of, you know, that that can also be an attack on black families. So how do we think about how to articulate what the family is or what kind of what it is that we even want to protect? Yeah. But also, right, there's been this resurgence and return to the most infamous proposition of family abolition. Sophie Lewis was here talking about their recent book on Abolish the Family. One of the pieces in the family problem features section deals with this question. Dorothy Roberts raises it. What's the interrelationship between family abolition and abolishing family policing, right? This is a sort of open-ended, both theoretical and very practicable question that you're raising, and one that the magazine was really interested in in proposing this title, The Family Problem, that it would allow for us to think across rather than only on one side or the other with psychoanalysis and and beyond its ken as well. So there are a lot of different ways to address that question. Yeah, it's a lot to figure out. Psychoanalysis can't completely help us get better, but it can help a little bit. (laughs) That'd be one way to put it, right? Or the other way to put it is that psychoanalysis itself isn't the means of a kind of societal transformation, but that it can also help clear out the way for what prevents us. It can help us better understand suffering. And, you know, this would be what some people on the left would critique it for, right, that it would ameliorate that suffering. Um, to the degree that then people wouldn't feel the need to go try to actually make <laughs> social changes. And Just there, to finish that sentence. Yeah, yeah. And that there's, you know, and then you, could, you would have to say so that then psychoanalysis would have to be working. In, in one paradigm, right, that people would feel that way. But the transformative notions of psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis beyond the individual, psychoanalysis beyond the bourgeois family has always been there from Freud onwards. And the, this what's called the activist generation of psychoanalysts that were all taught by Freud, including Wilhelm Reich, but many others, you know, traditions of psychoanalysis that don't just run through Freud, but run through Fanon, say, right. um, all have had this kind of question in mind. And one thing that we're trying to do in the magazine is sit with that apparent contradiction. And like, again, a hundred years of, of thought, which has successfully pushed theory forward and pushed the clinic forward in certain ways, but is also not, is also a story of failure, right? To participate openly. In, in that work. And so, you know, plenty of our less psychoanalytically oriented or even anti-psychoanalytically oriented friends on the left have happily made that joke and we make it right back with them. One thing I would love to say is that so parapraxis, you asked about this mission. Yeah. Right? What can psychoanalysis do? Yeah. So it's one thing to write. Think about that on the grounds of a magazine. The magazine is also published by, and I'd like be very happy for people to know about this, the Psychosocial Foundation, which Alex and I co-direct and co-founded. 
at the same time. We initially, right, just made it to How's the Magazine? We're like, someone's got to take the money and make it tax deductible and whatever. But very quickly, which is both like what Alex calls the Zeven subjunctive, I was like, what if we... (laughs) (laughs) It's like the most humiliatingly accurate description I've ever received of myself. What if we made the foundation actually do something? And the first thought was to have these seminars that work in parallel to the magazine that, you know, the first one was on the family problem where we all sat and thought across, like, what does psychoanalysis add to the picture of the family as thought through on the left in all of these different ways in black feminism, uh, in terms of, you know, Marxist depictions of the family on and on. What does psychoanalysis add? Now, right now, we just started our second seminar. You can still join it on repair and the problems and impossibilities of repair. And so we've heard from a Kleinian psychoanalyst, Klein coined for psychoanalysis, the term reparation. Next week, we'll have Michelle Stevens, who's a psychoanalyst who teaches at Rutgers, come talk about black rage, and so on, for 10 weeks. And that's like one way to do some of the work of thinking together, where thinking is really hard. Like, it's actually, it's much harder than people, I think, actually in the university context give it credit for. Like, Thinking is really difficult. And so one thing we wanted to do was have a place to think. The magazine, but also these foundation courses, the seminars, we have lecture series, short courses, all of which practice in this one way what they take as their mission, which is they're all sliding scale down to free. And so we've had a thousand students at this point come through in just over a year to learn about the psychosocial without being enrolled in anything, right? Without having to pay. Some people pay, which is great. It's how we keep the lights on. But as great, if not more, is that, you know, over 50% of our students come for free. And it's been really brilliant. It's been one of the joys of my life. So I think it's these things together that then are about thought, if that helps, rather than about anything else, right? Yeah. The, the, the wish is, is, is rather small, except it's so dear and difficult to find people and the time and the place and the remit for thinking. And that's what I think we cherish within this paradigm that we've elaborated. The seminars are over Zoom? Yeah. Yeah. So, there's so people can join from wherever. They can join from wherever. So actually, the Psychosocial Foundation and the magazine are technically both based in and published out of Oakland. So the infrastructure has been made completely mobile. It was born on Zoom, and it will be there until, and if you know of any listeners, let us know. You know, a bazillionaire buys us a building. That would be great. We have all plans for what would happen if that happened. But for now, it really is this gathering via Wi-Fi. And, you know, every other Sunday, 300 of us meet. And it's been totally incredible. That's great. Do people talk? Do like there's the breakout breakout rooms yeah. as well? Yeah. Yeah. So everyone listens to like just to use this past Sunday as an example. Everyone listened mm-hmm. to Grace Lavery speak for 35, 40 minutes. Okay. Some people are shorter. Some people go longer. Then we ask questions. Yeah. We have breakout groups, and then we come back and ask the speaker some more questions. So okay. there are these brilliant facilitators who donate their time. The speakers donate their time. I mean, the whole thing is really voluntary and. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, has just been like supremely moving, I think, especially in these moments where the questions we're asking are, you know, highly present all the time, right? When we're working on the family problem for a year, basically, while the family was under various families unevenly and differently were under all kinds of threat and remain so. It was like, okay, this is this is a thing to do, <laughs> is to think about why this is happening, why it's happening now, how it's happened historically, what it feels like inside, right, from every aperture. And similarly, you know, with the the question of reparations in this country and what what are the possibilities and impossibilities of repair of genocide and in the wake of enslavement. So these these have been, you know, who knows what topic three will be. <laughs> But that will be the similar procedure. There will be a seminar. And while that seminar is happening, an issue will be commissioned and edited. And you can read us for free or subscribe at parapraxismagazine.com. All right, Hannah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Hannah Zeven. She's the founding editor of Parapraxis, a magazine devoted to uncovering the psychosocial dimensions of our lives. Issue two comes out this summer. 
And that is our show for this week. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. And hey, if you like the show, you can review and rate us on Apple or Spotify. And what's even more fun than that is telling a friend. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schamenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Hannah Zeven. All right, time for some found sound. That was Kittens Purring in Stereo. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Airplanes like stars slinging.